Today we're going to look at 1 John, if you would, if you turn to 1 John chapter 3. And the title of the message is The Power of Sin Destroyed. We're looking at 1 John 3. What 1 John is all about, the Apostle John's given various tests to determine if we have eternal life. If you want to have the assurance, a lot of people, they battle with that, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really saved or not. If you want to have the assurance that you're fully saved, then I would say one good way to do that would be to carefully study 1 John, because that's what it's all about. In fact, you're in 3. If you just flip over real quick and look what he says in chapter 5, he tells us that's what he's writing about there. Look what it says, chapter 5, verse 13. At the end of all he's written, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And here's why. That's what that is, means. Here's why. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he's written all that. So you can know. You don't have to wonder. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so we're going to look at one of those tests today in chapter 3, actually, verses 4 through 10. And it actually begins back in verse 29. If you look in 29 of chapter 2, at the end of that, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So he's saying, if you're doing righteousness, practicing righteousness, that's a good sign. There's one assurance you can have that you're born of God. And what happens is he kind of gets sidetracked there in those first three verses in chapter 3 and thinking about the great privilege it is to be a son of God. He goes, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. He's just so excited. He kind of throws that in there because he picks it back up again, this whole thing of you can test whether you're born of God, whether you practice righteousness. He picks that back up in verses 4 through 10. Now, we are going to talk about what he's talking about there in those first three verses when we get into what we're going to talk about in Galatians 4 with adoption. So we'll be into that next week. For today, we're going to be looking at this test he gives in verses 4 through 10. So let's read them. And it says there, he says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he is manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or evident. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brethren. So really what you have here, if you can follow what I'm saying here briefly, is in these verses here, John is twice repeating the same argument. Okay, but each time he gives more emphasis. There's this universal principle of whoever commits sin. So follow me, look down in your Bible. So he begins verse 4 and says, whoever commits sin. And then in verse 8, he says again, he who sins. Those are the whosoever. Whoever commits sin, he who sins. The theme, though, is that the nature of sin is lawlessness. And we see that in verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. 
lawlessness. And he says it again down in verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. We're going to see here, it's saying one and the same thing because he is called the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. So he's saying the same thing. He's just adding a little more to it. And the purpose of his appearing, we see his purpose here in verse 5. You know that he was manifested. Why? To take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And we see the same thing again down in verse 8. For this purpose, that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. In essence, it's saying the same thing, but it's enhancing it each time. And the logical conclusion to all that is, with what he says, you find in verse 6, therefore, whoever abides in him does not sin. Because of his purpose was to take away sin, then if you abide in him, you dwell in him, then you will not sin. And we see him saying that again down in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. John Stott, who is a great Christian theologian, says, what this is telling us then is to continue in sin is shown to be a complete contradiction to the whole purpose of Christ's first appearing, and actually his second appearing too, because he's coming back for those that have purified themselves. So that's the whole purpose of his coming. That's what John is telling us here. So let's go through these verses and see what he says. When we look at verse 4, it says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This is one time where, I don't try to throw out all the Greek terms, but this is one time when understanding a little bit of what the original Greek text says is crucial. I got it on my notes here. I have got the actual, I'm looking at what the Greek says. And one of my classes, what we had to do over in Southern, we had to go through and translate the entire letter of 1 John, give our own translation of it or whatever. And, and the reason is, for those of you, like you could probably care less, but just anyways, I'll say so, because John is basically written in simple Greek. It's just a, a, one of the easier books where, versus Paul, who is, can be very complex and sometimes convoluted. But they had us go through the whole First John, and here is my translation, the John Solinger translation, which I know everyone's going to be begging me to put in print, of this verse 4, in essence. But what it's saying, when I look at the Greek and translated it myself, everyone practicing sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's what the Greek says. That's a little different than the King James, because if you have a King James Bible, your King James Bible says, whoever commits sins transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. The King James only people, I have no, I love King James. I do. I read it all the time. It's the best to quote. It's a beautiful, beautifully put. But every now and then, there's just some things that just are better explained is all I'm saying, okay? So... Anyways, the impression you get just from the King James language, we don't speak in King James language anymore, is that when you commit sin, you're breaking a single commandment of the law because sin breaks the law. And I'm saying there is a sense to that when you sin, you do break a commandment of the law. I'm not arguing with that, okay? But here's my argument, I guess, in a sense with King James. It's kind of giving you more of an interpretation of what it's actually saying because the word transgression is not here. It is not in the Greek. There is a word for transgression that's used everywhere else in the New Testament. But where in the King James it says, whoever commits sin transgresseth also the law, that is just one Greek word. And the word is 
lawlessness. It's ah, which is a not, and nomia, which is law, not law, lawlessness, without law. That's what the Greek word says. Why am I making a big deal out of that? Because <laughs> what's the difference between transgression and lawlessness? And it's this, transgression is an act. It's an act where you set a line or you have a sign, thou shalt not trespass, and you say, I am going to do it anyways, and you step over the line. That's transgression, whereas lawlessness is more of a state of mind or a condition of being disposed to do what is lawless. So one is a verb and one is a noun. To say you are lawless, it's like saying you are skinny or you are fat. It's what you are. So lawlessness is this attitude that I am opposed to God. I'm opposed to doing his will and his law. And transgression is putting that attitude into action. Does that make sense? And that's what's going on here. Lawlessness is the root. It's the attitude. It's the mindset. And transgression is the fruit that comes from the root. It's putting into action that lawless character. Frank and Jesse James if anyone was going to describe their character, they would describe them as what? Say, those guys are lawless. And what are you saying? They have no respect for authority, other people, or the laws of the land. That is their attitude. They are a law unto themselves. It's a state of mind that they have. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that state of mind? It's because they are transgressors. We see the fruit of their state of mind. So they make it a practice to break the law. The law says thou shalt not rob banks, and they robbeth many banks, didn't they? <laughs> Stole other people's money. The law says thou shalt not murder others, and they killed many people, and they not only killed them, they killed them in cold blood. They were cold-blooded killers. So they're transgressors of the law. And John is saying in this verse, the one who makes sin his practice is putting to practice his nature. His nature is lawlessness. So he's demonstrating his attitude towards God, his neighbor, and what is right. It's not so much an individual sin, even though that's included in that, but sin is lawlessness. Sin is an attitude, a mindset, a mindset that says, I know what God has said, but I am going to do what I want to do. It's that kind of mindset. It's like, I've seen it happen. A little kids go on past and the parent tells them, stop, come here. And they just say, oh. it's not that they didn't hear. They're not defective in their hearing, but they're defective here because they just keep on going like they didn't hear anything. That's what a sinner is. And it, it happens when they're three and it happens when they're 30 and it happens when they're 65. And they can be nice about it. People can be very nice, lawless people. And that's the way it works. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so today's society, and I'm saying a lot of times in the church, we excuse sin even in ourselves and in others by saying, well, he's just quirky. That's just him. It's like, really? You, know, you can blow up at somebody or whatever, and that's just him? Like, I don't think so. Not by what the Bible says. So the Bible just doesn't give that same wink to sin that the world does. They are winking at gross things on TV. You can't even watch the ignorant thing. Boy, if there's any time we ought to be getting rid of our TVs, it's today. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but it doesn't describe it in wink at sin. 
is like the Bible the way the world does. The Bible is describing it. That's what we're getting here. We need to understand it. It's rebellion against God and his will. And it's crucial we understand that because if we don't recognize sin for its nature, that it's wicked, guess what? We won't strive to live holy lives. We'll be like the rest of the world, just accepting what comes down the tube or on the tube, whatever. The New King James, in a sense, corrected King James because New King James says whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. The ESV version says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And the New American Standard says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's that attitude of lawlessness. And the NIV, this is my problem with the NIV. The NIV, it's giving you an interpretation many times. That's the problem with the NIV. Now, it may be correct in its interpretation, but whereas you have King James, New American Standard, ESV, they're down on this end where they're as best they can giving you a literal translation of the Greek. The NIV is more in the middle. Sometimes it'll be literal, but sometimes it's looking at the Greek and it's saying, well, we're going to tell you what it means. My thing with that is I don't want a translation telling me what it means. I want it to tell me what it said and I'll figure out what it means. But, like I said, a lot of times I'll quote the NIV because what they're telling you it means is right. But not always. But in this case, I think it's pretty good. It says everyone who sins breaks the law, and in fact, sin is lawlessness. The fact John is describing that the mindset or the nature of those committing sin is lawlessness is seen in verse 8. Because it says, what, what does it say down here in verse 8? He who sins is what? Of the devil. It's talking about that's the nature of one who sins. It's the same nature. And like I said earlier, it's the nature of the Antichrist. So he's saying sin is lawlessness. And in 2 Thessalonians 2 3, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 2, verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist is called what? He's called the man of lawlessness. It's that same word. And 2 Thessalonians 2.7 tells us this. It says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Already working. It's already working in the world system, this mystery of lawlessness. Guess when that is going to accumulate? It's the days that are coming. The great tribulation. The Antichrist sitting on the throne, the whole world is going to be following him, joining him. His spirit will be permeating all that happens in this world. But he's saying it's not going to just all of a sudden come on this world at one time. It's already at work. And John's writing that clear back right after the Lord died. It hadn't even been 100 A.D. So it's been working this whole time and it's building up. That's what it says. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, a spiritual influence. It's like a gas that just slowly just permeates everywhere. You think it stops at our door out here at our church? You think it just stops there? It's not trying to permeate into here. It is. We need to be very careful about that. Because at one point, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, and here we're talking about what this lawlessness is, this nature. It says at, at some point, though, he will be revealed. I don't know who he is. I don't know when that's going to happen, where he'll be fully revealed. But 
here's what this person will be like, this man of lawlessness, which John is saying, that's what sin, that's the root of all sin. He that sinneth is of the devil, same spirit. Here's this man when he becomes revealed, it says that he will be one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. You're going to see it in full fruit, what lawlessness is like. And that's what this world's going to be like. It's going to be worse than the days of Noah, when God had to destroy this earth. Worse than the days of Judges, when every man did that which is right in his own eyes. But that gives you a picture of what it'll be like, filled with violence, sex, no regard, lawless. That's the way it'll be. So we go on here. What does it say in verse 5? In verse 5 it says, And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in him it says there is no sin. So he was revealed. He came from the Father, sent to the earth by the Father. Why is that? And John says, this is something that we should know, that we should know. We should know why he came to be revealed. Was it to give us a happy life now? As some people like to preach, is that what it's all about? Ten steps to a happy marriage? Is that what it is? Did he come to give us how to manage your money with Dave Ramsey? Was that his purpose? Was that really why he came? I mean, not that any of those aren't necessarily bad. But it says here he was revealed to do what? It says it right there in the verse. What do you read there? What does it say? Revealed to take away our sins. That lawlessness that we're born with. And when the angel appeared to Joseph and said that Mary was going to have a child, a virgin was going to conceive, what did the angel say to Joseph? He said, she shall bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. From their sins, not in their sins. Amen? Amen. That was his purpose for coming. And how does he do that? He does it in two ways. We know he took the penalty of our sin. That had to be dealt with, didn't it? There was a price that had to be paid, a ransom that had to be given, not to the devil, but to the Father. And that was his blood. We were redeemed, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Came down here and shed his blood, offered it to the Father to appease his wrath. You know, the Bible, it's not so much we're angry with God, it's he is angry with us and needs to be appeased. And he gave up his own son. And John, the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that what he did? And Isaiah, it says in Isaiah 53, he was wounded, not for his own, but for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. He had to pay the penalty we deserve. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we're healed. Spiritually, physically, in every way we are healed through the cross, through what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. But not only did he come to pay for the penalty, he came to deliver us from the principle of sin. That's what this verse is telling us. That's what this verse is primarily focusing in on, isn't it? He who gave himself for us, it says in Titus. Why? That he might redeem us, buy us back from all iniquity, and here, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14. I know we've heard this verse. It's worth hearing again, though. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husband, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why? It says that he might sanctify 
and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that this church should be what? Holy, right? And without blame before him. That's why he came. That has got to be our goal above anything else, isn't it? It's not friendship, fellowship, let's have a good time, let's all get along, let's avoid all suffering. That's not what it's about. He wants a holy, purified bride. If you're his, that's what he's after. And we sing about that twofold purpose in one of the great hymns the church has for years, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. It says, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. But there are, I'm afraid, a lot of people. And this happens a lot of times when children, six years old, five years old, supposedly want to get saved because they hear about hell and it scares them. And who wants to go to that terrible place? And so, oh, just say, Daddy, I want, I want to be saved because they are scared about hearing about hell. It's not so much they're convicted of their sins is they don't want to go to hell. And that's a lot of people. They want to get cured of this disease. I've got this, Sheds his name. He's a great theologian from way back when, but he's got this whole article he wrote called Hellophobia. It's a disease people want to be cured from, and they come to the Lord because they want to get delivered of Hellophobia, this phobia. So they come to him for that, just that fear of hell. But the gospel, and that's the only medicine the Lord has in his medicine cabinet is the gospel as brother hamilton always used to joke about that one pill and it has a double cure that pill you take it'll cover your past give you forgiveness for your past but it also purifies your soul to have you be obedient to him and so the question is have you swallowed the pill because there's a lot of guys when i go to prison they give those guys medication i mean man the medication line is like from here to you know, Wadi. I kid you not. And a lot of those guys, they'll put those pills under their tongue. They don't swallow them. It doesn't do anything for them because they want to sell them or whatever. And so there's a lot of people that the gospel is still under their tongue. It's not really having a full effect on them. We got to swallow it. Swallow what the Lord's given us. And why is that important? It says this. Look what it says there at the end of verse five. He came to take away our sin. And it's important because in him, there is no sin. So if you would just put something there, just turn back a little ways to 1 Peter. And let's look at 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. He says, For to this were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That's what we're called to. He suffered for us. He left us an example. What? That we should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Those are the steps we're to follow in. Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Why? That we, having died to sin, might do what? Live for Righteousness, isn't that what it says? That's the purpose he died. By whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the reason he came. 
that we could have died to sins and that we no longer have to be bound by sin, but now we can live to righteousness. That's what John's saying, isn't it? And go back to 1 John. But if you look back, we're in chapter 3. If you look in 1 John in chapter 1, look what it says there in verses 5 to 7. And it says in 1 John 1, 5 to 7, this is the message that we heard from him and declare to you. This is God's message to us. John's saying, here's what we heard. We're declaring it to you. And that's to us, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And look what he says in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we do what? We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's saying, that's the message I have. God is light. If you want to have fellowship with God and you want to have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanse you, then guess what? That means you need to walk in the light because you're just, he's saying you're kidding yourself. If you say that you are in the light and you're walking in darkness, you're kidding yourself. He's saying, don't kid yourself. John's saying, look, if you're doing one thing and you fail this test, make the necessary adjustments. Not to leave you in darkness and not to condemn you, but saying you got to change. So back to chapter three, look what it says there in verse six. He says what? He says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And here again, it's in the presence Taking King James literally a lot of times and what it appears to us to say, you know, it just creates this confusion sometimes and it ends up in the John Wesley sinless perfection. But what this says is my translation again, the one remaining in him does not continue sinning because that verb is in the present tense. It's a present tense continuous action that's taken place. The NIV says something similar. Here I'm going to quote the NIV. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Like I said, John Wesley will take that to say, he takes the King James as it literally says and says, well, there, look, a true Christian will not sin. They'll be done with sin forever. That's that Christian perfectionism. And I'm saying, if you take King James, don't be too quick to whatever. That's what it does appear to say. And that's caused a lot of controversy. This, these verses here have caused a lot of controversy in what they mean in the church for years. But here's the problem with that whole interpretation that a Christian could never sin once they're a Christian. Who wants to claim, who in here wants to claim they're perfect from sin or have never sinned since they were born again? I mean, nobody's going to raise their hand. You want to raise your hand? Somebody? Anybody? Nobody's going to do that. Because then who could be saved? Who could be saved? And the Bible doesn't teach that because that's going to contradict. If you look back just one more time here in chapter one, it's going to contradict what John says here in one verse eight. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, well, we have to have something to confess, right? He's writing that to Christians. If we confess our sins, then God is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. But look what he says here in chapter two, verse one. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you can sin and everything will be okay. That's not what he says. He says, so that you may not sin. The goal is not that we can sin and think, take it lightly. He's saying, I'm not saying that at all. 
But there's an if there. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's a big thing there. I think what John is doing back in 1 John 3, I was thinking he's making in that saying he doesn't commit sin. He's making a broad statement, so to speak, about the life of a Christian. He's saying whoever abides in him does not have a life that is characterized by sin. If you have that, if you have a life that is characterized by sin, you have never met the Lord. So he's not dealing with the exceptions. There's obviously the person that is living in sin versus the person that is the if, the exception, if any man sins. That's what he's talking about there, the if in 1 John 2. And it's a big if. I liked what this commentator said, what John is saying in that verse, in this verse 6, where he says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or know him. I like what he said. It's like a father saying to his children, in this house, we don't hit each other. In this house, we don't hit each other. He's basically saying, that's not how we live. That's not the way we are in this house. We don't hit each other. We're not people that hit each other. And that's what John is saying. If you're a Christian, if you've been born of God, you're not somebody that sins. That's not characteristic of you. It would be uncharacteristic is what he's trying to say there. Like I said, if you abide in Christ, your life won't be characterized by the fruit of sin. It'll be characterized by the fruit of righteousness. And if you go back this abiding, if you look in chapter 2, verse 28, he says this. Little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We're not teaching chapter 2, but 10 times in chapter 2, he talks about abiding, that uniting yourself, like Tom used to always draw the vine and the branches coming off and the sap would flow into it. That's really what it's saying in John 15. We're so united to the Lord Jesus Christ in communion with him. Our nature, we've received his nature. There's, he's in us, we're in him. This life is supposed to be flowing through us and coming out, this fruit of righteousness. You know, he says, you'll know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. It's impossible. That's what that word cannot is. It's an impossibility. Neither can a corrupt tree, though, on the same token. If your nature hasn't been changed, if you're not in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's impossible for you to produce good fruit. You may have some artificial fruit stapled to you, but guess what's going to happen to that? Because it's not plugged in. It's going to wither and die real quick and be shown for what it is, artificial fruit. Here, what he's dealing with is these heretics, they're, they're saying that somehow you can say you're righteous and not practicing righteousness. Like I said, that's Matthew 7. You shall know them by their Fruits, Jesus said, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And that's why he goes on to say what he says here in verse 7, little children. Now, John was an apostle, but he was also a pastor. And this is his pastoral little children. It's, he's speaking nicely to them. His, his idea is to get things right, not to condemn them or have them think, what's the use? Who can live like that? It's like what we talked about when Solomon talked to his son, my son, listen to my instruction. And that's what John's doing here. Little children, 
He's saying to his church, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. That's what he's telling them there in verse 7. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't be led astray. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 24 about not being deceived. Matthew 24, 4, three times he said, don't be deceived. Matthew 24, 4, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Verse 11, many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Verse 24, for there shall arise false Christ, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So these false Christ and false prophets will claim to be righteous. They will. And Jesus says, how are we going to know who they are and that they're false? How does he say? We just read it in Matthew 7, or I quoted it. We'll know them how. By their fruits. The Pharisees claim to be righteous, and outwardly, he says, you appear to be righteous, but he said, inwardly, you're not. And their fruit really was not good fruit at all. Outwardly, they were holy people. They were respected by the people of Israel. But he said, if our righteousness doesn't, what, exceed theirs, we will never make it in. So we've got to have that inward righteousness. To be righteous, he that does righteousness, it means what? It means to be upright, fair, and just. One who does what's right, that conforms to the will of God. I want to talk a second about this, and I could say a lot more than I'm going to today on this. But I think our problem, in a lot of ways, are the little foxes. I don't think many in here are committing adultery, even though we have had that happen in our church. And we've had fornication take place. And I'm not so naive to think that fornication isn't taking place today in here. That's a big sin. You're living in fornication. You're sleeping with somebody. And you're not married or an adultery. You're just showing by your fruit who you are, who's your father, what nature you have. So I'm not saying somebody couldn't have committed fornication and be free. You know I'm not saying that, right? Do we have to get into explaining all of that? But if that's what we're talking about, if that's how you're living, continuing to live, you have got a problem. Really? I mean, you do. But I'm saying I don't think most people in here, I hope not. That's the problem that we have in here. I don't think drunkenness is a problem. I don't think doing drugs is a problem. I don't think we got Jesse James in here robbing banks and murdering people. And I think that's part of the problem is we look at it like I'm not doing anything bad. I have no known sin in my life. Nothing glaring like that. But like I said, I think it's the little foxes. So let me ask you. Is that all that God cares about for us as Christians? The big sins, but the little sins don't really matter. The little sins. There's this lady named Kim Butts. And I read this. I thought, I'll read what she said to you, and you'll take it a lot better than if I said it to you. And I ask you to pay attention. Because I think this is very important. Okay? She says this. Why is confession of sin so often overlooked or glossed over in personal and corporate prayer? Is it perhaps that the weight of guilt from certain sins sometimes leaves us paralyzed and unable to act? Is it because so many little sinful acts are not considered important enough to bring before God? 
the white lie or the little bit of gossip or the fleeting thoughts have become so insignificant that we don't even look upon them as sin. Our culture has left us desensitized to the little sins. We are daily becoming more morally corrupt. One minor sin at a time. She's saying we're becoming more and more morally corrupt. One little sin at a time because of the influence of our culture. When we can continually stretch what we will allow our minds to absorb and our eyes to take in from our televisions, movies, the books we read, the people we are around, etc., we are becoming more and more a part of the world and less and less a part of the kingdom of God. Selah. If we would just stop to think how the Lord of the universe who lives in us views the things that we consider, quote, acceptable, our mindsets would change drastically. If we would ask the question, is this pleasing to God? We would have no difficulty discerning what we need to stay away from. Instead, we gradually begin to look more like those who are in the world rather than reflecting the image of Christ. She went on to say, God's people need to be holy as he is holy. Holiness doesn't, quote, settle for small amounts of sin. Any sin grieves the father who loves us. Our standards should never be set by others, only by God, whose standards are clear and commanded. And I'm saying we all, starting with me, we need to ask ourselves, what are the small sins that we're allowing in our lives? And I also found this illustration. So Pilgrim's Progress, it's a good book to read. I've talked about it several times. But in the third scene of that book, Christian reaches the house of the porter. And he goes in, he's going to take a break from his journey. And there's three women in there, piety, prudence, and charity. And so as he begins to talk about his journey with them and he starts recalling different events, he talks about hearing the sleeper's dream. Where a man named Sleeper, he's warned about his judgment through a dream, this judgment that's coming. And it said he was temporarily frightened, Sleeper was. And he doesn't earnestly repent of that sin because he viewed his sin that he was shown as a quote-unquote tiny sin. But Piety, she knew Sleeper. She hears Christian telling us she knew Sleeper. And when Christian tells the story to Piety, she informs Christian that Sleeper had been intending to repent of this tiny sin since her grandfather was a small child. And Christian had said he pitied him. He pitied old sleeper because he said he's suffering this, this condition and he's going through all this because of one small sin. However, piety doesn't look at it the same way. She doesn't in interpret sleeper's predicament the same way. Here's what she says to Christian. She says, well, that sin, it wasn't tiny at all. She says, if it was so tiny, then why would he not trade it for all the riches of eternity? If that sin was so tiny, why would he not trade it for all the riches of eternity? And the writer of this article wrote this. I'll read you what he wrote. I thought this was good. In asking this question, piety gets to the heart of the matter. It is correct to say that not all sins are equally heinous. However, 
So in other words, not all sins are equal. Murdering somebody and butchering a family is not the same as you didn't give a nickel back when they gave you too much change. However, it is also appropriate to state that when a person clings to any sin, this person is making an exchange. In clinging to a, quote, little sin, a person is making a subtle statement that this sin is greater to him than all the world to come. In other words, clinging to, quote, small sins means that we are choosing sin over Christ himself. That is why there are no small sins. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their sin was a, quote, small sin when viewed from a humanistic lens. However, in choosing this fruit, Adam preferred the words of the serpent over the command of God. So we look at Moses smiting the rock. We're like, man, that guy, he restrained himself all that time. What was the big deal? Hit that rock twice. What is the big deal about the guy picking up the sticks? Look, what's the big deal? They touched the ark. What's the big deal about that? They're struck dead. Seems like a small sin in our eyes. But it wasn't in God's eyes. So he's saying here that if we want to be righteous, we have got to practice righteousness. And we have got to let God deal with us. We can't hear truth for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, and just be hearing it and thinking that's an end in itself and pride ourselves that we hear the word if we're not putting it into practice. I'll tell you what would be a good exercise is get some biographies. You think, well, everybody around me, we're righteous. I mean, get some biographies. Read about men like George Whitfield, some of these holy saints of old, and read about how they spent their time. And you'll be convicted about how you spend your time. I'm convicted about how I spend my time. Read about some of these old saints. It would do you good. Turn off the TV. Get rid of your social media for a while. Take a few hours a day and read a biography about a true saint of God. I got plenty of them. Got some of them back there. We'll move on here. Let's look at verse 8. It says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the ESV, I like its translation on that. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I've said this already, but what he's saying is the one who is practicing sin is showing that he has the same nature of the devil because that has been the devil's practice from the beginning. And really, people don't like to hear this, but it's still the Bible, and it's not anything I wrote, and it's not anything I said. It's something that our Lord Jesus said, so I guess if you don't like to hear this, you've got a problem with him. In John 8, 44, he's told the Jews, and it would apply to anyone that is not a Christian, you are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. He's saying that's his nature. For he is a liar and the father of it. And whether we like to admit it or not, we were all born with his nature. Everybody in here. Your little cute little baby has got the nature of the devil. I hate to tell you that. To the oldest person, to anyone you meet out there in public, that, well, he's a nice guy. He's a, no, he's got the nature of the devil if he's not a Christian. I don't care how nice he appears, and there are nice people. I'm not saying people are as bad as they could be, whatever. But he's got the nature of the devil. 
The Bible says this, that we are by nature, we were by nature the children of wrath. And what he's telling us here, though, John, the good news is that's what Jesus came to destroy. So he doesn't want us, his people, to live like the devil and his children, which is most of the world. I'm sorry to say, that's most of the world. No, he came to destroy, to abolish, to put an end to that nature in us, the work of the devil. He came to destroy that work in our lives. But the word here isn't just singular, it's plural. This purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy not just the work of the devil, but plural, the works. The context here in John is he's saying he came to destroy that sin nature in us. But also he came to destroy what else? Sickness, didn't he? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He came to destroy demonic oppression, fear, fear, broken homes. And most of all, he came to destroy death. I hate death. I really do. Every funeral I have to do just makes me hate it that much more. It terminates relationships that were not meant to be terminated. And that is an enemy that is going to be destroyed altogether, isn't it? That's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so the devil's attacking us right now. He is out and attacking us in three ways. Morally, he's trying to entice us to sin. Physically, he's attacking us with sickness and demonic oppression. So don't open the doors. Don't let occult things come on into your house through your TV with your kids and wonder why they're acting goofy. Intellectually, he's trying to deceive us and bring us into deception. So he assaults us as Christians in the whole world, body, mind, and soul. And it says here, Jesus came to destroy his works. When it says that he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, I looked up that word oppressed, what it means, and it's a word, kata dunastuo, which kata means against. Dunastuo is where we get our word dunamis, which we all know that means what? Power. But what it's saying there, there is a great power, the devil, who oppresses this world and tries to oppress us. There is a great power that is kata, against us. It's a word that means to oppress, exploit, to dominate this tyrannical rule like you have down in Cuba with Castro. Those people, man, they, the ones that I've met that have come here, they are just so glad. They sing all day long. When I moved here, we worked around these Cubans. They sang all day long. I said, man, you guys are awful happy. They're like, we are so glad to be out from that oppression in that country. We can't help but sing. That's literally what they said. And they would sing all day long. Never seen a happier group of people. That's the way we should be. That's how our praise should be, isn't it? Because we've been taken out from under this tyrannical ruler. We need to understand this. We are not left to be poor victims, are we? To this tyrannical spiritual being. Is that what the verse we're reading tells us? That the Word of God decides what we believe and what is true? What does he say? He came to do what? This is his purpose, that he might do what? Destroy the works of the devil. 
I'd love to sing this song, but I'm going to give you the words that a mighty fortress is our God, because listen to these words in light of what we're saying. A mighty fortress is our God. He's a bulwark, never failing. What's a bulwark? I'll tell you what a bulwark is. I didn't know. It's a, it's a huge defensive wall. He is our huge defensive wall, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And listen to this. Still our ancient foe, he seeks to work us woe. And his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Now, if that was the end of the story and all you ever sang was verse one, you would be depressed. But here's what he goes on to say. Did we in our own strength confide if it was just up to us? He says our striving would be losing. If you're trying to fight the devil in your own strength and power, you've lost the battle. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with evil filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. Well, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sided. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And if you're not willing to die, trust in God, you're not going to make it. We've got to be willing to die. Isn't that what the word is? Forsaking all to follow him. Luke 14, he that loveth mother, father, sister, brother, yea, and his own life cannot be my disciple. I say Martin Luther understood what we read in verse 8. He got it. And here's a little aside. If, if you want to hear a rendition of this song that will have you up in your chair cheering, Get on YouTube and listen to Steve Green. He sang it at a concert one time. I'm telling you, I heard that. I, I was up out of my chair cheering. Best rendition of this song. Praise God. That's the way it is. Martin Luther got it. We need to get it. He was under threat. The Catholic Church wanted to kill that man. There's a lot of people wanted to kill him. He's like, I am not compromising on you. Do what you want to me, what you will. And God preserved him. Others weren't preserved. Didn't it say that some in Revelation, some will be cast into jail? Some of you? Didn't it say it? Didn't say all of them. It said some will. That's a promise given them. Verse 9. Look what it says here in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he has been born of God. So the reason he's saying there, it's not his nature any longer. It's an exception that new nature, born of God, born of God's seed through the word and the spirit. First Peter one says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
What happens? The Word and the Holy Spirit give us new life. And that new life should do what? It needs to grow. It's a growth that takes place. What we're not preaching, and I think this is another hang-up sometimes, is you are not going to be up here where you read of some saint of old that's, you know, 30 years walk faithfully. That's not just going to happen like automatically, is it? And for some people, you might have been, quote unquote, saved 30 years and you just haven't grown much at all. Maybe this will help you out. I heard this. I thought this is good. We're not elected. God didn't elect us because we're righteous. It's not like you're elected and, oh, I did that because you're a righteous person. You're already there. No, he elected you to make you righteous. And it's a growth that takes place. You know what that means? That means you got problems. You got things that trials and different situations are going to expose. You got angry when you shouldn't. You had an attitude or whatever. And you feel bad about it. That's a good sign you're born again. I want to do something about that. And God's doing that because he wants you to get rid of that. He's got to bring it to the surface. So instead of getting discouraged and like, I must not be a Christian. I'm not saved. A Christian doesn't act like that. Well, if you keep acting like that, you got a point. But the point is, God's bringing that out, and that's it. so you can deal with whatever you need to deal with. Because His goal is to make you holy. You don't start off that way. It's a process, isn't it? We're elected to be holy, not because we are holy. You know, in 1 John, he says, Every man that has that hope in him that he's going to see the Lord one day, what does he do? It says he purifies himself, it's a process. 1 Peter 2 says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. How is this growth that is supposed to take us to the full stature of Christ? How does that take place? It's not going to take place when you never read your Bible. And you read other things or you do other things. And by the end of the week, you're like, man, I really have not opened my Bible. Well, then how's the growth going to take place? Let me read that again. First Peter 2, as newborn babes, and I would say is at any age in the Christian life, desire. You should have this desire. If you don't have that desire, there's an issue. The sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It's the food that causes us to grow. You know, when you see somebody that's got malnutrition, what's happening? They're not eating or else they're not eating the right things. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how we live. Amen. All right. Verse 10. Close it up with this. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, evident. It's not a mystery. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Do you want to know whether you're of God or the devil? It's not that complicated. Just look at your life. Look at how you're living. Look at what you practice. And that's what he's saying here. So to sum up everything that we've said today, verse four, a sinner is someone who lives in a state or condition of doing what they want to do, living in opposition to God. They can be nice about it. They can be religious about it. But in their heart, they are lawless. I'm not going to do what God tells me. Not if I want to do something else. I'm going to enjoy myself. And verse 5 says that the righteous, we here, this church, this is my prayer, we will see the purpose for Jesus coming to earth. And it was to take away that sinful nature and desires. Why? So that we can be like him. And that sounds good preaching, doesn't it? No one's going to disagree with that. But do we really want that or do we really believe that is really the question. We're children of God. Sin should be abnormal and unnatural to us. 
So a believer may fall into sin, but he's not going to walk in it. And there's a big difference there. And verse 6 is telling us that if the life of Jesus is flowing in you, if you abide in him, then it is impossible that your fruit is going to be sin. Impossible. That's what it's telling us there. If it is, then he's saying you don't know him or your eyes have never been opened, is what it's saying. And verse 7 We're warned not to be deceived that only those, whether it's us or anyone else, that are living upright, just, fair lives are righteous and are right with God. Verse 8, those that live in sin are of the devil and Jesus came to destroy his works in every sense of the word. What the conclusion is, it's critical, isn't it? And here's the point. The point is not to judge each other, is it? The point is, today is what? We need to judge ourselves in light of this test that John's given us here. That's that's what it is. Paul says to examine ourselves, to see if we pass the test. Jesus came for the purpose of destroying sin and the work of Satan in our lives. So let me ask you a few questions here at the end. What is the continual purpose of your life? Is it to do what you want to do or to live in righteousness what's the fixed direction of your life is it god most of the time or other things most of the time even things that are the quote-unquote little sins or the things that are innocent or not sinful in and of themselves but you do it too much and it crowds god out of your life i mean you could take walking in the park and make it an idol to where you just do that all the time and you never spend any time with the lord well you just walk around the park and look at birds and take pictures Anything can be an idol in that sense. We have to ask ourselves that. And what is the ever-present rule of your life? Is it Jesus? Is it the Lord Jesus or the flesh and the devil? So how you answer those questions are going to determine whether you pass the test. I just pray. I'm begging us, all of us. We can't just make this just another message. I heard another, I like that, but I'm going to go hear something. And just forget about it. I think the Lord's speaking to us today, isn't he? I hope so. So if you fail the test, don't give up. I mean, by God's grace, you can cry out to him and repent and get things right. Because it's not too late until it's too late, as the sermon went, right? And when is that? Well, sometimes God gives people up and they may live another 50 years, but he's through dealing with them and you just don't care and you can just walk away from him and it doesn't bother you. That's not a good state to be in. And it does happen. The other thing is if you die, it's over with then, isn't it? And that's going to happen to all of us, one way or another, isn't it? And we need to be prepared. Amen? Because it's not something that happens overnight. It's a process, isn't it? It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable. And what does he say? Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the little sins take over and conform you, but be renewed in your mind. And that's the acceptable form of worship that God wants from us. Amen? And we'll find he's walking with us, and there's life all around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for speaking to us today. Father, I ask that you'll have your word to abide and burn in us, Lord, burn in our hearts and cause us, Lord, to want to have more of a desire to walk with you, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and to see the works of the devil for what they are in our lives, what he's trying to do to us, Lord, to keep us from drawing near to you. And I just ask you, Father, you'll impress on all of us to 
have a strong desire for your word to crucify our flesh. Put your word first in our life. Prayer to you first in our life. And we'll put you first in all that we do, Lord. I just ask that you'll do that and make us a holy people in all respects, body, mind, and soul. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here today in Jesus' name. Amen.